didn't realize well, that's that. That's an interesting question. You know, I've never heard of it from that So let's talk about that. Let's talk you know, about that. I think you need to come over, stand in my to shoes. Agree to disagree. This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. Each week on the show, we take a topic people feel strongly about, and we go searching for perspectives that help us feel more empathy, hope, maybe a little challenged. We're not trying to change your mind. We just think in a world that is so divided, there's power in thinking more deeply about why we see things the way we do. Today, can we heal from historic injustice? My name is Sharon Leslie Morgan. I'm a writer and genealogist. My Black ancestors were enslaved in either Mississippi or Alabama. My name's Tom DeWolf. Um, and like Sharon, I'm an author. And I'm also related to the largest slave trading dynasty in U.S. history. Sharon is Black and Tom's white. When I think of Sharon now, I think of one of my closest friends. We developed this connection where we absolutely love each other. Meeting Tom DeWolf elevated the work that I was doing in incredible ways. And we went on an adventure that helped us to understand and deal with healing historical harm. They're co-authors of Gather at the Table a book about the three-year journey they took across the country looking to reckon with America's history of slavery and their own. In my family, I had a very hard time sussing out the history because nobody really wanted to talk about it. I had a great-grandmother who I later found out had been enslaved. She died at the age of 104 when I was a small child. But I knew her, I saw her, and I remember her. And the revelation was amazing to me. I'm a kid growing up in Chicago, right? I didn't know where my family came from. I didn't know who I was related to. It has just been amazing to be able to uncover as much as I have and to figure out how not to be angry about it. Because everything that you uncover is very sad and makes you angry. I think a lot of families just bury these stories because they're so horrific and embarrassing. I used to own a little um, restaurant slash movie theater downtown where I live in Central Oregon. One guy one time said, I think we might be related because my dad's middle name is DeWolf. He says, yeah, he's got this genealogy book. And I said, the DeWolf book? He said, I've heard of it, but I've never seen one. No one in my family has one. And when I got married, my wife and I actually went to his dad's home uh, in Massachusetts. And he started telling me all these stories. This was in 1986. And he was telling me how we're related to all these famous people like Herman Melville. And then he says, and then there were the slave traders, rum runners, and privateers. What black people, the descendants of enslaved people have had to put up with, I don't have anything to compare to that. You know, where, I, where I'm stuck is in the fear and the shame and the grief and the, you know, just the brokenness from this long history of being descended from abusers. And what Sharon and I decided is, here's what two people can do. We could do this journey together and see if we, you know, survive it with our, you know, friendship and dignity intact and, and learn some things about American history that is often buried. And to do that meant looking at our history the good, the bad, the ugly. It meant building the relationship. It meant working towards healing, and it meant taking action. It has changed both of us, I think, in incredible ways. Instances of injustice are embedded in American history. Slavery and the treatment of Native Americans are particularly glaring examples. But it's been centuries since colonial settlers and the U.S. government murdered indigenous peoples and drove them off their land. Slavery was abolished 150 years ago. Can we just declare those chapters wrong, close the book, and move on? 
Well, many argue that we cannot, that we haven't, that the consequences of those historic wrongs still echo in American society. Could some sort of intentional effort to repair, to repent, to make reparation, heal our divisions? Now, this is not a uniquely American thing. Most countries have national sins in their past. And conversations about righting those wrongs often get hung up on the idea of reparations, of cash payments. But doling out money is just one piece of a larger process. What can or should nations be doing to reckon with their past? And what's our role as individuals in that process? Well, for Sharon Morgan and Tom DeWolf, the first step was personal. Sharon and I met at a coming to the table class. I did not like him. (laughs) Coming to the table is a national program focused on healing America's racial wounds. They host retreats for descendants of enslaved people and descendants of enslavers. The coming to the table approach leans heavily on learning the truth about the past and making connections across racial divides. Sharon was invited to the retreat by someone she met through her genealogy work, but she was not keen on going. I came to coming to the table kicking and screaming, and it's like, why would I go to Virginia with all these white people that I do not know and do not trust? But I was encouraged to do it, and it was a blessing in the sense that I ended up meeting Tom DeWolf. By the time they met, Tom had already participated in a documentary and written a book about his slave trading ancestry. Inheriting the Trade was the name of it. And the whole experience just completely turned my life upside down. But all Sharon saw when they first met... It's like, here's this white guy, blue-eyed. I mean, this is like picture-perfect white guy. And he is sitting across the table staring at me. At the time, it was like, no, I was really kind of resistant to all of this. I am here because I am curious. Mm, So you were curious about what? Trying to understand the white perspective? I cannot use an expletive here. (laughs) What happened? How do you figure out what this means to you? And how can this information be used to go forward? Over the course of the week, Tom and Sharon warmed to each other, but their real connection came later. I was going to Chicago to speak at a college not long after that. I knew that Sharon lived there, and I sent her a message, and and she was busy that night. She said, but I'll stop by just to give you a hug. And I was so impressed by that, that she would go out of her way to come and just say hello for 30 seconds and very warm hug, and that was sort of the turning point to me. I I was just so impressed with what I had learned about coming to the table, and so I wanted to write about that as kind of a, a, a sequel or a, the next step of the journey to my first book, and it quickly became clear to me that this wasn't a book I could write on my own, and I knew that Sharon was a writer, So I approached her and said, hey, I'm thinking about doing this. And over the course of conversations, we agreed to begin this journey together. And it was Sharon's idea that, you know, one of the key pieces of this is we need to meet each other's families. There was a a time when we were in Southern California, the very beginning of our trip, and we're driving to my sister's house to have a, a Thanksgiving dinner. And so my whole family's gonna be there and it's very rural. It's way out in the boonies. And as we're driving, we go over this little bridge over this dry creek bed and Sharon says, if that floods, how do we get out of here? And I'm like, what? What are you talking about? And I said, it's a completely dry creek bed and it's, 100 degrees outside, there's no rain in the forecast. And and then, you know, it became clear what we're talking about here is Sharon being a black woman going into a very white community with an all white family and having to think about kinds of things that I never think about, except 
when I was on my honeymoon, um, my wife and I are driving through New York City on our way to Bristol, Rhode Island, and I got off on the wrong off-ramp and ended up in Harlem. And there's only people of color around. And I remember telling my wife, don't move quickly, but reach over gently and lock your door. And that was when I felt fear. I have been raised to be fearful of people who don't look like me. And I told Tom, my son lives in Harlem. Okay, so Harlem is not a place that is fearful for me because it is, it, at that time, it was a place where there are 99% black people. So I don't have the same reaction to a place like that that he did. And it was really interesting when we compared it. What, what did that reveal to you about what's broken in America? We live in parallel worlds. Yeah, yeah. So Black people, we have our own world. We have our own uh, places, institutions, communities. We've made these places where we we feel safe amongst each other. And white people live in their own space, and they're afraid of us. So I am afraid of white people. I still am afraid of white people, in spite of all the things that we have done and the book that we wrote and all of that. And I don't know the answer to how we get past this, but I know that there is this barrier and that if we don't cross it and if we don't do something different, it is not going to change. After visiting their families, Sharon and Tom turned to the past. They drove more than 6,000 miles across 27 states in Sharon's Jeep, visiting places of importance to America's racial history and the racial wounds in their own family trees. One of the stops on Sharon's list was a cemetery in rural Alabama. She was looking for the grave of one of her ancestors, a white man named James Leslie, who she believed to be her great-great-grandfather. I had done extensive research on him and I found his burial place, and I wanted to prove that this is the person that I've been looking for. This is also how you started to uncover the your fair complexion, right? So understanding that there was an enslaver, a white enslaver, who yeah, but you I believe mean, the white people your- are all over my family tree. There are many, but yeah, he was one of them. Sharon had actually been to this cemetery once before with a friend who was also black, but they were not able to confirm her genealogical research, even though they were standing right in front of what she suspected was James Leslie's grave. I saw all these tombstones, so I know this is the right place, but there was this one tombstone that was face down so you couldn't see it. And I asked for help, and my friend said, oh, hell no, I am not pulling up this tombstone because there was a white man on a tractor watching us and he's like, no, we could be arrested and hurt for this. So they left without knowing whether Sharon's research had been right. Now, the second visit was different. This time she was with Tom. We couldn't find the cemetery initially. And I said, let's go. There's a truck at that house. Let's go knock on the door. And she says, I'm not knocking on any door, but you can go knock on that door. And I did, and this white woman opens the door. She'd just gotten out of the shower. She has a towel wrapped around her. And I just, I thought, if I was a black man, they would have never opened this door to me. But because I look like them, you know, they told me right where the cemetery was, no problem, and and we went over there. and And Tom, help me dig up that tombstone, turn it over, and... But now, it was right. And how did it feel then to to know that you'd found his headstone? That the, when you were able to flip it over and see that, what what did that do for you? I was very excited. It was like it was a really. I'm happy because my research ended up being correct. And then I'm angry again because it's like, wow. Okay, my black ancestors have no gravestones. They have no place you can go and prove them. There's no evidence of them ever having lived. 
I mean, talk about going to the place of the wound, right? How this brings together for you so much of the harm that, and the trauma that you've carried, it sounds like, Sharon, the sort of, you know, anger at the white, the white side of your DNA that refused to claim you and therefore, you know, kind of, is it fair to say fuel has fueled or did at least early on in your life fuel this resentment towards the white? Yes. Whiteness. It did very much. And it is very, it's hard to get over that. Well, Tom, how did you feel being um, the white person who could facilitate this discovery for Sharon? Part of it was just acknowledging the fact that because I'm a white guy, I can go anywhere and I don't go anywhere in fear. And part of the thing here is that white people can go anywhere. They don't have the same uh, onus on their existence that black people do. So I'm afraid of calling the police. I'm afraid of driving while black. I mean, there are things that I don't do because I am in fear of doing so many things that would be normal for anybody else, anybody else being white people. Part of the power in Sharon and Tom's journey is that they did it together. They talked and wrote about the very different ways they were experiencing the same places they visited. Bit by bit, they learned to see through the barrier between their parallel worlds to gain a deeper understanding of how the legacy of slavery has shaped their lives, Black and white. You know, the harms may have been done centuries ago, but they were also done minutes ago. And we'll read about them in the newspapers tomorrow. And it's it's such a long history of discrimination that has resulted in my benefit and Sharon's detriment. You look at the GI Bill, that 98% of the money went to white GIs after World War II. And so you saw all the education and jobs and new businesses and houses built out in the suburbs, all white people, which just increases the segregation and the lack of connection. And then all the money that's raised by property taxes to pay for schools, of course, you're going to have better schools where houses are more valuable. And so then you got all the white kids getting a, a, a higher quality education. No matter what social indicator you want to measure, it's more advantageous to be white in this country than it is to be black or brown. And in this case, it is understanding the history, building the relationships, working towards healing by any means necessary, and then taking action to undo systems of oppression that are based in race. Do you think, um, do, would you support reparations, actual cash reparations to the descendants of, of enslaved individuals? Yes, and. So uh, when, when people talk about reparations, that's a word that typically scares the crap out of white people because they think, I never owned anybody and I'm going to have to give money to somebody who was never owned. That's not fair. The thing about repair is anytime we're looking at repairing something, it's because something is broken and needs to be repaired. There's never been a good relationship between white people and black people in this country. We're creating something new here. And, you know, yes, it may involve money, but if all it is is money, there were there was, you know, several thousand dollars given to everybody of Japanese descent who was interred during World War II. Did that get rid of the racism towards Japanese people in this country? Absolutely not. And would just writing a check solve the legacy of slavery? Absolutely not. Repair involves so much more. It's a change in your attitude, a change in your actions. It's changing the systems that continue to negatively impact people of color. I'm totally in sync with what Tom is saying. And I will say that, as we said in our book, the first step in reparation is being able to build relationships across the color line. So the building relationships and then confronting the past 
and being able to see factually with honesty what happened and to find ways in your own life when you can make changes. Would cash payments make make any difference for you, uh, Sharon? Would, would you want to be the recipient of something? Yeah, I always was cash. But <laughs> <laughs> the cash is not as important to me personally, although I think that would be great. I think that the bigger picture is more important than an individual payment. So yeah, I'd love to have money, but that is not the primary thing. I think it is more a societal change of paradigm on how our systems work. You know, I, I think one of the things that's important to me is it's not top of mind anymore that she's a black woman and I'm a white man. That's absolutely true. But the first thing I consider her is my friend. And right. this is what friendship looks like. This is what healing looks like, is when you can commit to a friendship, commit to a relationship enough that you get to this point where we really are curious about each other, we wonder about each other, we, we spend the kind of time together to build a friendship. You know, we can change all the laws we want, but until we change the hearts and minds and spirits of individuals, we're not gonna transform our society the way Sharon and I have been talking about. Tom DeWolf and Sharon Morgan are co-authors of Gather at the Table. Sharon is founder of Our Black Ancestry, which helps African-Americans do family history research. And Tom's first book about his slave trading ancestors was called Inheriting the Trade. Healing may start with individual hearts and minds, but governments and institutions also have a role. Bygones don't become bygones just by your say-so. They will return to haunt you. When should a nation attempt to repent of its sins? And how? I'm Julie Rose. This is Top of Mind. We are a wounded people because of the conflict of the past. On Saturday, December 16th, 1995, Archbishop Desmond Tutu held the first meeting of a committee designed to help his country, South Africa, heal from decades of government-sanctioned segregation and violence. No matter on which side we stood, we all stand in need of healing. We on the commission are no superhuman exceptions. We too need forgiving. We too need to forgive. South Africa's first democratically elected government had just come to power with Nelson Mandela as president. Apartheid was over, but... There were widespread pressures to deal with the, the crimes of, you know, during the apartheid regime. This is Eric Wiebelhaus Brom. He's a professor at the University of Arkansas Little Rock's School of Public Affairs. And for over 20 years now, the focus of my research has been on how societies deal with histories of violence and repression. What got me interested in this topic was actually the South African Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Now, South Africa was not the first nation to create a Truth and Reconciliation Commission, but it helped to popularize the practice, which has since been used by countries around the world grappling with past sins. Welcome to the first special report on the Truth Commission. There were hearings that were scheduled around the country. The Commission's first hearings were held here in the East London Town Hall. And it's been a week of raw emotion. <laughs> There was this weekly Sunday evening program on South African TV that basically summarized, you know, here's what happened at the TRC in the last week. And it was the most highly rated program in the country during that time. We just heard on the door, the police were banging with their guns and they kicking the door. There was torture on daily basis. There was killings on daily basis. Our commanders had absolutely no respect for our lives. That's audio from the South African Broadcasting Corporation's weekly special report on the Truth Commission back in the 90s. Ultimately, the goal was to 
start a path to reconciliation. P part of it was about f forming a common national narrative. But what was really innovative about South Africa was this truth for amnesty provision that was, was part of the, the Truth Commission. And so what that entailed was in order to encourage people, particularly perpetrators or alleged perpetrators, to come forward and to provide more information about what happened, you know, to enable loved ones to find the re remains of their loved ones and such. This truth for amnesty provision was entailed. And in exchange for that, they would not be prosecuted. Exactly. And so critics at the start argued that this was going to be a whitewash, that it would be difficult to impossible for the Truth Commission to ascertain and to verify both of those things, you know, that people would just lie to get off. But at the end, uh, at the end of the commission, of the people that came forward and submitted applications for amnesty, only about a quarter of them were accepted. Oh, so so they didn't all, it wasn't blanket amnesty. It was on a case-by-case -case basis. Some people still got prosecuted even though they told the full truth. Right, right. And some, and some people decided to gamble that they, they wouldn't. Some people didn't come forward. Because it wasn't a guarantee. Right, and, and as, as, as history bears out, I mean, a few of those people who um, didn't get amnesty have been prosecuted in the years since. So um, history has borne out that assumption that they would be safe. What was the effect of this uh, at the time that these hearings were taking place? Can you speak to what, what the effect was on South African society in, in the process of this? Some people found the experience very cathartic. You know, they were able to find out more information about what happened, whether it was to themselves or uh, spouses, children, grandchildren. For others, it induced post-traumatic stress. Many people who came forward, victims, witnesses, survivors, they came forward anticipating that there would be some sort of monetary reparations that would follow from their, their participation in the process. The Truth Commission, one of its recommendations was a reparations package. The track record of implementing those recommendations is pretty mediocre. The government for years said, we can't afford to do this. And then when it finally delivered on it, then it just provided a one-time cash payment to people rather than a, a monthly pension. Other ways of, of, of assessing the impact of the TRC, there were surveys that were done throughout the process and then for years afterward. What surveys found was that South Africans tended to think that the TRC made race relations worse, it made things more tense. Really? Yeah. Like yeah. Why? I mean, what? Uh, the, you know, what I would hypothesize would be kind of along, um, along the lines of an argument of, of, you know, putting salt on old wounds. Does that mean that a truth commission cannot be a tool for, for societal healing? Like maybe it was able to provide some limited reparation in some places um, and, that in some, and that it also led to some reforms, you know, like kind of big institutional changes. But, but fundamentally, if your goal is to repair the divisions that serious wrong have created in your history, telling the truth through a truth commission is not, is not going to, to bridge that divide. Those more pessimistic assessments were most prominent when the commission was just wrapping up its work in the late 90s. And when surveys were done later, like in, into the early 2000s, that sentiment weakened and people started to see more positive effects. So I think once those hearings were kind of less in South Africans' faces from week to week, that kind of blaming the commission for tensions fell away for many people. When you look at South Africa today, Professor, do you, do you think South Africa is changed for the better as a result of the Truth Commission? Yeah, I think there are s stories and experiences, m you know, memorials and museums uh, about the apartheid past that are, are scattered around the country that probably would not have happened. Looking back, I think there's some disappointment about what it didn't do. The commission was focused on what would have been violations of law under apartheid. So like acts of murder, acts of torture. There was not really a confrontation with uh, apartheid as a system and, and apartheid as, as a crime in and of itself. And the, the economic and social harms that it did to black South Africans. Under what circumstances do you think a truth commission could be the very best option when dealing with large past harm? What, 
What is the ideal scenario for a truth commission to create some sort of reconciliation? I think truth commissions are most useful if we think of them as the first step rather than the last step of dealing with the past. If we're going to hold people accountable, if we're going to provide reparations of some form, if we're going to memorialize that past in some way, we need to first have this basic like baseline of what actually happened. So I think truth is a, is a useful place to start to develop uh, uh, s- sympathy, if not empathy, for people on d- different sides of so- societal divides. How well do you think the United States has addressed the harm in, in our history, uh, specifically related to uh, slavery and extending to Jim Crow segregation and violence? And we could also, I guess, reference the murder and displacement of indigenous peoples. Right. Um, has, has any of this work taken place in the United States, to your mind? Very little. And it's been a patchwork. Little has been done at the federal level. There's been legislation reintroduced for years in the House about creating a commission to study and come up with proposals about what that might look like. It hasn't progressed in Congress in years. Is it possible, Professor, though, that, that too much time has passed? That, that it's just too late at this point? That we can't jail the enslavers and you can't compensate the enslaved? That there really would be no no value to it. Yeah, and that's a that's a very common argument against it, especially for harms that are from generations past. But I think part of this challenge of dealing with this abstract big past that seems too big is also behind why we're seeing in some places in the U.S., whether nationally or in within particular states and particular municipalities across the country, efforts to create truth commissions that are looking at a more narrow set of harms. So nationally, there's an effort not only to, to more broadly create a commission to look at the historical treatment of indigenous Americans, but also one that's more specifically focused on native schools that pulled children out of native communities. So a more narrow focus could be more effective rather than say, we're going to have a truth commission to deal with all of our racial history here. Precisely. Maryland has a lynching truth and reconciliation commission that the state is conducting right now that, as you said, is looking at a specific kind of harm. Some cities have created commissions that look at housing discrimination and and the legacies of that. We've seen uh, calls for truth commissions and some being created that are really focused on police brutality. Short of a national movement or even a state movement, is, is there an individual action, do you think? One would be to become better informed about the experiences of Americans who aren't like you. So I would say visit sites, read books, participate in these community dialogues to learn more about the experiences of of, of people who are different from you. Eric Wiebelhaus-Brom is a professor of public affairs and conflict studies at the University of Arkansas at Little Rock. For a Truth and Reconciliation Commission to really bring healing, it has to do more than find the truth. The reconciling lies in implementing the recommendations the commission makes. But in case after case, those recommendations are delayed and dismissed by people in power. The real work of repentance and doing the agonizing work of understanding who we have hurt and how and what that looks like is long. It's not instant gratification if you're going to do it right. Why is it so hard for us to do the work of making things right? This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. Oh, God. It has changed my life profoundly. Uh, My name is Rabbi Danya Ruttenberg, and I'm the author of On Repentance and Repair, Making Amends in an Unapologetic World. I think I've grown a lot since taking this work more seriously. And it's, you know, it's not been a, a, a pleasant uh, look at myself necessarily, but that's the work. The work is repentance. And Ruttenberg says she developed a soft spot for it in rabbinical school. The word I'm using as repentance in Hebrew is tshuva, which literally means return. It's about coming back to where you were supposed to have been all along before you strayed 
right, before you caused harm. Returning to your values, to your connection to God, if that is language that resonates with you, and growing in the process. Shuva is a spiritual practice. Um, it is something I do a lot. I mean, I screw, I'm a human person, so I screw up a lot. And instead of, you know, there's that thing we do when you screw up and you kind of hope nobody notices and you kind of push it down and there's that little guilty voice and you try to ignore it. I actively try not to now. And, and you start to figure out who you were, that you did this and, and understanding that you don't want to be that person. It's transformative in the best and deepest sense. So Ruttenberg was cultivating this personal practice of repentance when Me Too became a movement. And she got an email from a journalist she knew who was working on a story about what repentance might look like for famous people accused of sexual abuse. Ruttenberg was quoted in the story and then expanded on her thoughts in a Twitter thread that went viral. It took her by surprise how interested and, frankly, confused people were about repentance. I think when people hear the word repent, they think about an individual feeling really sorry about what they did. That it's mostly an inward feeling as opposed to something that, that involves many actions. She started to notice how American culture in particular tends to ignore the hard work of repentance— when some person or institution causes harm, we get upset, sure, and demand an apology and maybe even try to cancel them. But almost as quickly, we turn to the victim and start talking about forgiveness. When we push people to run and forgive, we are, A, dumping all of the labor on the harmed party. So somebody is sitting there still going, ow, and we're saying, forgive, let it go. We're not asking anything of the harm doer. And um, we're not doing anything to prevent the harm doer from committing more harm either to this victim or to potential future victims. We are not changing the systems that facilitated this harm. It's just giving harm doers a free pass and asking victims, some of whom may be deeply traumatized, to uh, absorb their harm without any, any care for them. Why is that? Would you share a little more about what you think kind of predisposes us as a nation and as a culture to n not be quick to want to or, or think about the work of repentance? I think there are a few reasons. Um, number one, we are an extraordinarily individualistic culture. We talk about the rights that we are owed rather than our obligations to one another. And so when harm happens... There isn't a sense of a community surrounding the harmed party and taking care of them and making sure that their needs are met. And there isn't a sense of communal care for the harm doer to say, that was, we know you and we know you can do better than that. It's very not my problem. And so, uh, you know, just let it go becomes a, an adaptive feature in an individualistic culture, right? If a victim of sexual abuse, for example, if we want to talk about Me Too, uh, if somebody says, I was harmed by this person, largely the people in that industry kind of ignore it, or it will go through this whisper network, but people are not going to show up until uh, basically the labor is put on the victim to what? Go to the New York Times, right? There isn't the sense of, of community understanding that they have an obligation to be part of, of the story as well. It's, it's all on the individual harmed. Do you, do you think that this preference, this prioritizing of forgiveness um, ha has affected the way America as a nation has dealt with the, its own large national harms. Do you think that predisposition to focus on forgiveness affected, for example, the way America treated the harms of slavery immediately after the Civil War? <laughs> Why, yes. Um, so what happened is that immediately after the Civil War, like right after, white 
Northern preachers, some of whom were abolitionists, began preaching white Northerners should forgive white Southerners and should basically even overlook the brutalities that were being committed upon Black Americans who were either freed or newly freed in the South. Right? Jesus said to forgive, and forgiving is the greatest, most you know, important thing to do. And they had just fought the most bloody war in all of American history over the institution of slavery. And then suddenly, without missing a beat, these white Northerners are saying, you know what, never mind. These Southerners are our new best friends. Or they could have been saying, though, that war was so awful. Let's not prolong the agony anymore. Let's let's get to unity as fast as we can. And I guess that the thinking might have been, you know, they lost, they were wrong, slavery is over. Now we need to just figure out a way to not ever have another civil war again. But prioritizing right. unity, right, over right. over holding people accountable. Well, right. And, of course, the you know, one of the, the reasons for this was the, the larger United States was so fragile at this moment after the Civil War. And there was a sense of needing to move into preservation mode. And what this did was reinscribed white supremacy at a time when it was in danger. Because if the we that is kissing and making up is white, and the we who is becoming unified as America is white, then black Americans are absolutely out of the picture. And the we who are white are supposed to even ignore the brutalities, the atrocities being committed by rogue, angry Southerners, right? We're not caring about them or taking care of them in any way because we're going to forgive. So so do you think as a nation we have never fully repented? We never did the work. We never did the work. Listen, Reconstruction attempted to begin a, a reparations process for Black Americans, right? The question was asked, what do you want after the Civil War, and the answer was land. That's how 40 Acres and a Mule began, right? This idea that we were going to parcel out these these land parcels that had been confiscated by the Northern armies. And then that got canceled right after Lincoln's assassination, right? And um, the government has never since then offered any kind of reparations or even work of repentance. Rabbi Ruttenberg, what does real repentance look like then? And, and, and where does reparation fall into that structure? So, uh, as I understand it, there are five steps in the repentance process. So where I'm getting this is uh, Maimonides, who was a medieval Jewish philosopher, physician, legal scholar, you know, genius. <laughs> he's, he's one of our biggest guys. Um, step one is confession. Owning fully the harm that you have caused. So obviously the pre-work is understanding the harm that you have caused and having to face that sometimes you're not the good guy. Even if you meant, well, even if you're also wounded, you caused harm and that's real. And so then you have to own it verbally, right? Or, you know, sort of out loud. I did this. It wasn't okay. And it's considered praiseworthy to do it in public. Not because we're putting you in the stocks, not because you're bad monkey, no biscuit, right? But because you are showing up to your community, you are saying, I'm struggling. I fell off the, that path of my best self and I need help. I cannot do this alone. So guys, here's what happened, right? Can you show up and help me get back to where I'm supposed to be? And then step two is starting to change because we don't want this person to be walking around committing the same harm again and again and again, right? You have to do things to break that pattern. And so are you going to therapy? Are you calling up your sponsor or showing up to rehab? Step three is amends. You harmed someone and you have to figure out how to 
close up that hole in the cosmos you created. And so that might be financial remuneration directly to the harmed party. It might be remuneration to a, a, an organization that's appropriate. It might be devoting time and energy, volunteering for a little while. It might be, depending on the harm, devoting the rest of your life to tireless advocacy on this issue because you know you can never actually undo what you have done. And then we get to apology. And people are often surprised that apology is all the way here. Yeah, I mean, it seems like you would have done the apology right off the bat. Like, I confess and I'm sorry. Right. This this apology is not something that your publicist is going to write and post on Instagram, right? You're not checking off a box. And if you are still basically the same person as the one who did the harm, that apology is going to feel like checking off a box. Whereas if you are doing the deep work, you're spending time in therapy, you're learning about anti-racism, you're doing it, you're doing the, you know, you're doing the amends work. By the time you get to the apology, you get it so much more. Like the light bulb hopefully has gone off about 14 times since the confession step. And hopefully this apology is flowing from an open heart that is actually contrite and that genuinely wants to communicate to the harmed party how sorry they are. It feels different. So to really do the work of repentance, you need to confess, start to change, make amends, then you apologize. And there's a fifth step, making different choices. When you get to the opportunity to cause that harm again. And you will always have the opportunity to cause that harm again. You naturally and organically make a different choice because you're different, right? If you don't deal with, uh, if you don't do step two, if you don't start to change and keep changing and do the work, then you will inevitably find ways to play out your anger again and again and again. Where does forgiveness factor into all of this? I believe with every fiber of my being that repentance and forgiveness are separate tracks. So in Judaism, in my system, there is no universe in which you must forgive me or else I can't be done with my repentance process. The penitent has their work to do, and that is their business, and they need to do it the best they can. And the harmed party has their healing work to do. And if somebody is coming to them sincerely and repeatedly, and it feels like they're doing the work in a meaningful way, maybe forgiveness will show up. And if it doesn't, then, you know, that is their process. And it's okay. If you are harmed in a way that can never be repaired, you're never required to forgive. So I want to say this clearly. You are never required to forgive your abuser. You might. You might find yourself doing it in the process of healing, but you never have to. Can you think of an example uh, of an institution that did repentance right? The University of Michigan Health Centers is one of my favorite examples. Generally, when medical malpractice happens, uh, the approach is deny and defend, right? That didn't happen, you're fine, shut up, what are you talking about, right? And the University of Michigan Health Centers decided to take patient care seriously and to try a new approach. And so now, Whenever anything happens, they show up right at the patient's bedside. They say, oh my goodness, we are so sorry, but such and such happened during the procedure. That is not what we were hoping. Here is some financial compensation. We know it can't undo what was done. Here's what we're going to do to make sure that nobody else experiences this mistake. And we're going to try to take care of you, right? And so what do they do? It's confession. (laughs) It's figuring out what what goes wrong and trying to change, right? It's changing systems. It's amends. It's apology. It's making different choices next time. 
And what has happened is that medical malpractice suits have dropped by half because people see their needs taken care of. They see their emotional needs taken care of. They're seen as people. So what would repentance and repair look like for America at this point? The first thing I want to say is the idea that it's not my problem. I was, I, I didn't own slaves. Uh, it doesn't hold weight. I say this as someone whose ancestors came, you know, as a Jew whose ancestors came from Eastern Europe in the, you know, late 19th century. I benefit from white supremacy every single day. And so we, we are obligated. So I think that is really important to make clear. Systemic racism still impacts the ability of Black Americans to accrue or generally not accrue intergenerational wealth. Systemic racism still impacts academic, housing, professional options for Black Americans. I don't know what reparations should look like. I am not the right person to make that decision. What I do know is that if we look at, at, at what tshuva, what re- real repentance really is, we know right away that uh, saying here is a one-time payment, throwing some money at black Americans and saying, hey, we did it, shut up, stop complaining, is not it. If our goal is to create a new future in which the same harms of white supremacy are not replicated again and again and again, then that starting to change peace. First of all, telling the truth, right? I really believe that with national issues, we have to start with truth telling and and let that take us very far. And then step two becomes a lot clearer, but then there is starting to change. And if we are gonna do this correctly, then so many of our systems are going to have to inevitably look really different on the other side of this process. And do you think that if the nation had taken a different path, had taken the path of repentance and reparation after the, after the Civil War, for example, that, that some, a lot of what you're listing here would not be the case today? I think it is absolutely possible that if we had let Reconstruction actually flower in the ways that it was meant to, that we would be living in a very, very, very different country, one that was much more whole. Rabbi Dania Rotenberg is author of On Repentance and Repair, Making Amends in an Unapologetic World. Rabbi, thank you so much for your insights today. I really appreciate it. I'm so grateful to, to be here. Thank you so much. Top of Mind is a BYU radio podcast. Today's episode was produced by James Hoops, Kimberly Beck, and Madeline McKenzie, with help from me and Sam Payne. Our sound designers are Trent Reimschussel, Christian Mockatel, and Mitchell Towsley. We'd love your help to get the word out about Top of Mind. And an easy way to do that is to leave a review or give us a rating on the podcast app where you listen. Thanks. I'm Julie Rose. We'll talk soon.